You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. The world will know that we are Jesus's disciples by how we choose to love one another, which also means that the world will not know that we are Jesus's disciples when we choose not to sacrificially love one another. How do we accomplish truth and reconciliation? This week, we'll explore this question as we continue our conversation with Dominique. He shares some beautiful examples of racial reconciliation and how to work towards a future of God's life-giving vision once healing occurs. One of the themes I'm, I'm hearing creates a question for me. Majority culture has separate from God is like an Egypt. It becomes like a Rome. It has this logic of this synthetic superiority that it tries to create. My question is, why is there such a blind spot for majority culture to see the things that you're talking about? Because this this type of history, this type of law, these types of realities, you know, I didn't grow up being taught in any way, shape or form, whether it was church, school, friendship circles, nothing. So why is there such a blind spot to this? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the consequences of systemic racism. And so when you asked earlier about systems, well, systemic racism is the curricular choice not to include this part of U.S. history within textbooks. It is the choice to know that this history is well-documented and undeniable, but to say that this is actually not the education a person needs to actually be a healthy, productive citizen, contributing member of society in our country. And so part of the division is that you have people who come from communities who know this history, who have been exposed to the dark side of this history, and we try to come to the table to try to reconcile or have productive conversations with our brothers and sisters of majority culture and sometimes of people of color who don't know this history. And it's almost like, you know, we're spouting off lies that are unsubstantiated. And it, it gets really hard to be at the table when there is no common memory, uh, where there is no common acknowledgement of historic facts. That's how you get into a situation where, you know, hard truth that doesn't align with your worldview is dismissed as fake news or, you know, something that is not actually true. And so I think in this, this post-truth era, um, it becomes particularly challenging to have these conversations. I think part of the reason why it's so hard to have the conversations is that there's fear. I think there's real fear from people that if we actually understood the depth and the breadth of racism and we confessed it, that people who have suffered from racism are going to be so enraged that they're going to try to come back and seize everything like there's going to be this kind of vitriolic animosity that's articulated and you know I think the reality is most people of color know this history so there's not going to be this new kind of revelation of animosity but there's finally going to be a chance for us to move forward together because there's going to be an actual acknowledgement of the pain of the suffering of the oppression I think one of the things that really animates 
people of color in destructive ways is the refusal to acknowledge that this has happened and that we aren't crazy and that the pathologizing of our communities is actually not true. I think people are living under the weight of societal expectations that say, you know, in my in the world today, right now in our nation, there's a one in three chance that a black person is going to spend time behind bars. So what that does to the racial imagination of the nation is it tells you to look at people like me and automatically assume criminal intent. To live under the weight of that is so heavy when people are trying to do right, when people are striving to flourish, but society expects that I'm up to sinister activity or that I have no good intentions, regardless of my track record and my credentials, the, the primary assumption that people have with people like me, young or African-American with locks, is that I am up to criminal activity. And so I think that becomes so weighty. Um, and I think acknowledging the history and legacy of sin and racism in our country would actually start to absolve some of that weight. And it would create a space where reconciliation can actually start to manifest itself. Because as Brian Stevenson says, you know, he says, I believe in truth and reconciliation, but there's an order to it. There's a sequential, there's truth, and then there's a reconciliation. And I think as long as we continue to hide behind the mask of denial or of, well, that's not my lived experience, or that was so long ago, why does that even matter today? As long as we respond to racial oppression and division with those kind of stale responses, we're not going to be able to move forward together. And I'll just give you one other uh, thing that I want to say, particularly in regards to the church. Like, we have to reckon with the fact that, you know, we made the decision ecclesially to say that baptism no longer brings you into an equitable relationship with the people of God. Because during the era of slavery, what would happen was Black people would come to faith in Christ and they were supposed to be liberated from slave, the system of slavery and treated as an equal. Well, because that was getting in the way of people's profits, we made the decision that baptism no longer was going to liberate you, but it was going to still allow you to hold a position of inferiority. And that is, a, again, a direct contrast to the truth and the liberating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we look at the fact that we created slave Bibles, where we literally took out whole sections of the biblical text so the slaves wouldn't believe that their Lord and Savior was a liberator, was someone who had the power to overturn unjust systems and structures, and that had a, a missional purpose for them to be truly equal with their brothers and sisters in Christ in proclaiming the good news of our Lord and Savior. Like, the church is complicit, and until we reckon with that complicity, we're going to continue to have these circular conversations. And so people like me, I, I can't speak for everybody else. My heart is that we have to have these hard conversations 
and we have to reckon with the murky nature of our history so that we can actually authentically confess and be liberated from the shackles that continue to bind us and the ways in which that we can't enter into authentic relationship and communion with our brothers and sisters across lines of difference. In Revelation 7-9, we see the mosaic nature of the kingdom of God. We see that every tribe and people and languages are gonna be surrounded around the throne. We're gonna be family together. And when we pray the Lord's prayer, we pray that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we know that that's the heavenly vision of what will be, we have to have an urgency in the here and now in pursuing that vision, because if we don't, then that prayer is inauthentic. We're not really asking for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we know that Revelation 7-9 is the heavenly vision and we're, con we're content with homogeneity, when we're content with saying, oh, well, that might suck, but that's not my problem. Those just are not gospel responses. The kingdom has such a bigger vision, a more robust vision of life together, and the spirit is trying to will that into resistance, and the church has to stop resisting it. I know the church never wants to see itself as something that's resisting the will of God, but when we continue to be content with stale responses to oppression, like, oh, that's not my problem, or that's not in my community, or, you know, that's so far in the past, we are resisting the newness that the Spirit is trying to birth among us. And God's plan for communion is so much better so much more robust, it's so much more meaningful, um, so much more life-giving. And I, I just pray that we can catch a hold of God's vision and be compelled by the Spirit to step into uncomfortable places and spaces because that's where newness is birthed. Dominique, like the, that's a winsome picture of the kingdom of God. How do we, how do people of color, uh, white folk, how do people of every spectrum work toward that? What, what would you say are key steps that, that you think are crucial? And then maybe give some examples of signs of hope where you're yeah. seeing this being embodied. Yeah, I think what's crucial is that we have to learn to read scripture in a way in which we see ethnic difference as a parallel to racial difference today. And so much of what we see in the New Testament in particular, is the early church trying to figure out how do we be one interconnected body as the body becomes racially, I mean, well, ethnically different. As we become a mosaic, multi-ethnic community, how do we continue to find unity in Christ? And so I think when we read the biblical text and it's talking about, you know, Canaanites and Jews and Gentiles and all of these different ethnic affiliations, I think we kind of read it as if it's all the same people group. Like ethnically, you know, there might be a couple differences, but they're not like real differences like what we confront when we try to bring in, you know, Black and Brown, Indigenous, Asian American. It's not the same level of complexity. And that's just not true. The, the biblical text is trying to show us that being a multi-ethnic interconnected body has always been a challenge and it's going to continue to be a challenge. Navigating cross-cultural ministry is challenging, but the fruit of it when it actually starts to manifest is so much more 
worth it than trying to deny the challenge and just staying content within our homogeneity. So I think Act 6 is a, Act 6, 1 through 7 is a great story of this. Um, we see the Hellenistic Jews trying to navigate life together with the Hebraic Jews. We see uh, ultimately their ability to navigate that leads to missional fruit that brings new people into the kingdom of God that never would have come if they weren't able to navigate that ethnic division that's right there in the text. We see over and over again uh, that where- particular story, the movement forward of the gospel into other realms of culture and race was started with a problem, like an issue arose. It taught, <laughs> And then all the leaders that came out, when they empowered and gave power to those leaders in that situation, uh, like Stephen um, mm-hmm. and others, they all became major leaders in the church. I mean, there was this burst of amazing growth by by embracing the um, the boundary um, pushing and overspilling kingdom of God. Yep, yep. That's what Pentecost is all about. It's about the people of God having an expectation of how God was going to show up and work in and through them. And God said, my expectations are going to exceed yours. I'm trying to birth something new into existence. Can you catch up to what I'm trying to will into existence? Or are you going to try to resist it? And again, I don't think the church ever wants to see itself as resisting the movement of God and the spirit of God. But when we see the scripture is very clear about the trajectory of the kingdom and what the kingdom will look like. And when we don't pursue that, what we're doing is resisting. And so I think we have to have a vision for- With, Without even knowing that we're resisting, just to come back yeah. to that cultural majority culture, which you can yeah. have within the church, within any system, within any, any group, within any community, the majority can actually be, become resistant to or fighting the purposes of God without knowing it. Sorry, yep. to, uh, keep going, keep going. This is good. No, 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 that's great. That's a good, that's a good insertion. If- fight the will of God knowingly. And there are much more people who are not aware of it. And in large part, it's because our discipleship has been in a box. And when we are only surrounded by believers who look like us, think like us, engage like us in the world, they're going to be blind spots in our faith. That's why diversity is a revelatory gift from God. Uh, We need each other. And when we're in community with one another, some of those blind spots start to get filled out, get a more robust understanding of the kingdom. And we also get a greater clarity of God's image. Because if we all reflect God's image, if everybody looks like me, thinks like me, acts likely, then I'm getting a picture of God's image, but not a whole vision of the image of God. And so I think we have to We have to try to paint the picture for our congregations to help them to understand the way in which this world treats diversity as a problem to be solved. And scripture tells us that diversity is actually a revelatory gift from God who shows us more of who God is and how God is at work in other places and spaces that actually help to energize us and give us vision and a roadmap for how and why we have to be intentional about pursuing diversity and then navigating some of the complexities that come as we pursue life together. So I think those are some of the fundamental things, but I think the other piece is that we have to become a church that is intentional about remembering. 
So this is one of my big things. You've heard me talk before. You know, in the Old Testament, God tells Israel to remember over a hundred times. Remembrance is actually the linchpin for Israel's faithfulness. When Israel remembers who and whose it is, it lives distinctively and missionally and purposely for God. God enters into a covenant relationship with Israel and says, because I've liberated you from slavery, because I have actually freed you to live fully for me, when you get in positions of power or when you are actually able to dictate you know, interactions within your realm, you are supposed to make sure that there are a couple things that you don't do. You're never supposed to create systems and structures that privilege some and disenfranchise other. You're never supposed to exploit the poor. You're never supposed to deny the foreigner amongst you of living equitably with you. You're supposed to look out for the least of these, uh, the orphans, the widows, the poor. These are these are hallmarks that you are my people. And when Israel remembers who it is, it lives faithfully as a signpost to the rest of the world about God's love, mercy, and justice. But when Israel forgets, it's just as prone to create systems and structures that privilege some and disenfranchise others. It's just as prone to exploit the poor. It's just as prone to neglect the, ne the widows, the orphans, the least of these. And when Israel does that, God sends prophets to its midst and the prophets are a sign of God's grace and mercy. And the prophets call Israel to remember, remember, this is not who you are called to be in the world. This is not why God has, you know, chosen you. God has chosen you to reflect God's love, mercy, and justice, not the ways and the patterns and the logics of this world. And when Israel heeds the words of the prophets, they're restored to right relationship with God. When they refuse to heed the words of the prophets, God sends them into exile because God's not gonna be complicit with oppression even when the people of God are the ones who are enacting it. That's the that's the narrative of Jesus' birth. He, he yeah. comes into a setting where the people of God who represented by Herod, but then the religious leaders and, and Israel, God's people, like you're talking about, Jesus, the son of God, the gift of God is given and they have become like Egypt. Herod has become the new Pharaoh. Yep. He's like the slaughter of children is, is parallel to what's by, uh, in Egypt from Pharaoh in Moses time. And Jesus becomes the new Moses. I mean, we know that's this narrative, the new Moses that has and to flee in, yeah, into the new <laughs> Exodus, but he finds safety in becoming an immigrant child who immigrates to Egypt, who used to be the enemy, but now becomes a place of safe haven for him. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, the roles are reversed and the question that for the believer, the question for anybody who's a uh, follower of, of Christ is, man, how did that happen to the religious community? Yeah. And so remembrance, one of the real reasons why we continue to have the division that we do in the U.S. today around the body of Christ is because we we refuse to remember all of this racial oppression and systemic sin that I've named. These are things that the church is called to remember to make sure that we never repeat it. Then after we remember, remembrance should lead us into lament. We have to create space in our churches to lament the brokenness that exists. After we lament, we confess. We confess our complicity. We confess our apathy. 
we confess our indifference. And after we confess, we move towards repentance. And in repentance, we make commitments to turn away from apathy, to turn away from complicity, and to return to right relationship with God and right relationship with neighbor. And, and we can commit to making sure that we keep with repentance so that there's fruit in our repentance. I was going to say, then, right, we're back where we started, bringing right it to back that where fruit. We started. And that, those are the things that I think the church really has to commit to if we're really going to become what scripture commissions us to be in the world and with one another as an interconnected body. Right now, when parts of the body are suffering, there are other parts of the body who feel nothing. We are not interconnected. And when there are parts of the body that are celebrating, when justice is actually manifested, there are other parts of the body who are indifferent. We're supposed to be an interconnected body who really is in it together. And I'll close this part with this kind of, this is a helpful kind of thing for some folks. So everything in the world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. That's the mantra that we told, you know, from our parents when we talk about how we should care for our family, how we should show up and defend them and their dignity and all that good stuff. But that's true everywhere outside of the scriptures, because the scriptures actually tell us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines. And it's baptism that has to redefine who our family is today. And so when we think about, you know, immigration, uh, and the crisis on our southern border, when we think about mass incarceration, when we think about Me Too, when we think about these, these social realities that are impacting particular communities, and it's not impacting us, when we can have an apathetic response like, well, that sucks, but it's not happening to me or anybody I see myself as connected with, that breeds an anti-gospel response of apathy, indifference, and complicity. But when we see ourselves as connected to brothers and sisters across racial, ethnic, gender, class lines, and we see that our, our freedom, our flourishing is inherently interconnected, and that we are actually family, manifested through the baptismal waters that have transformed our identity and given us a new missional purpose in life, then we get to go out into the world and bear witness to that through how we love one another. Going back to how we started with John and First John, it tells us that the world will know that we are Jesus's disciples by how we choose to love one another, which also means that the world will not know that we are Jesus's disciples when we choose not to sacrificially love one another. So a lot of times we talk about evangelism. Well, what we have to understand is how we choose to love is evangelistic. When we choose to love one another in sacrificial ways that don't make sense to the rest of the world, people are going to want to know why. And when they ask why, that's when we get a chance to articulate our faith and invite them into the fellowship of the people of God, uh, because we're called to be a transformative presence in a broken world. Dominique, this has been amazing. I've so appreciated hearing, hearing this. This is, um, I've been growing, you know, in, in racial righteousness and reconciliation. This has been a road and a journey for me. So voices like yours, they challenge, they evoke 
a wider, broader vision. I think I, I love your focus on memory. I think in the letters Peter writes, he, he talks about memory being a huge issue for the children of Israel, you know, forgetting what God has done for them. And I mean, that reminder to remember, I mean, just thank you for that. I, I could stop this, but I, I just have two <laughs> other quick questions. If maybe we do like a speed round f- uh, for you. Um, yeah, let's do it. There's two two part question, but one is, can you can you list some s- examples of maybe where churches are doing some of the stuff you've talked about with reconciliation, truth telling, memory, remembering together, or or other aspects of like racial reconciliation? Maybe just give us a few examples where you're seeing that. And then I have a, a last question about hope. Yeah, there's a covenant church called Sanctuary in Columbus, Ohio, who is a beautiful illustration of some of the things that we're talking about. They are intentionally multi-ethnic and they are committed to speaking truth and love, but not allowing, allowing the rhetoric of love to shroud out hard truths. They're committed to staying at the table when it gets uncomfortable and persevering with one another. I think, you know, we have opportunities for kind of discipleship resources that start to help communities foster this type of life together, uh, one of which is kind of going to be rolled out at the beginning of 2021 called the Invitation to Racial Righteousness, which is an opportunity for congregations to come together and to have some of these conversations over what in person would be table-based dialogue, which virtually will be Zoom breakout room dialogue. (laughs) Um, But uh, we get a chance to really unpack what the gospel has to say about this. And I'll just kind of emphasize this with a, a, you know, scripture, one one of the verses that is just so beautiful where it talks about Jesus had to go through Samaria. And when I think about that, you know, everybody else in his day and time would go around Samaria, would add miles to their journey to avoid going through that stigmatized place. But the integrity of the gospel was dependent upon Jesus's countercultural witness, upon Jesus's willingness to go where other people would not be willing to go. And that's the same call that's upon the people of God. We have to be willing to go to the hard places, to go to the places and spaces that others won't go, because we know that we have a resurrection spirit at work within us that is actually trying to bring reconciliation where death and destruction and despair have loomed and reigned for too long. And so it's just a beautiful invitation. You know, it makes me think a lot of, I think, well-meaning Christians and uh, who have who've maybe grown up in dominant culture, you know, maybe regardless of their, you know, ethnic background, cultural background. But, but, but let's be truthful, too. A lot of this is, you know, white dominant communities. You know, they, they just don't, they're tired of the tension. They're tired of, man, I don't want to have any any more of this uh, confrontation. And if we can just kind of act like there's peace or have a peace without talking about it. But what you're saying is to, to have true harmony. I'm talking about those people that have, they want, they long for harmony, but they exchange true harmony for a false kind. So they don't have to go through con- uh, confrontation. Your encouragement to the tr- church is not to be a church that has a false sense of harmony, but is willing to go through the valley of the shadow of confrontation. <laughs> confrontation, willing to go through Samaria, willing to go through the wilderness journey to learn uh, how to actually have peace and harmony that that rings true. Yeah. 
one of the greatest temptations for the church is the belief that we can have the benefits of the resurrection without having to endure the pain of crucifixion. And for reconciliation to be made manifest, there are going to be some things that have to die. And um, I always say you can't crucify what you can't name. And so we have to go to some of these hard places and spaces to name what needs to be crucified so that we can lay it before the cross so that Christ can rise in and through us and live in a way that uh, we bear witness to the kingdom in the here and now. So, Oh, that's beautiful. So here's my hope question. Given yeah. the reality of a realized eschatology that says, hey, we are both now and not yet. Um, and there's different, you know, personalities that lean a little bit more hopeful, a little bit and some a little bit more, um, they might call themselves a realist. Given that that reality, um, this question is for you. Uh, if you were to go to sleep tonight, you wake up 10 years from now, 2020 is long gone. You know, people can actually hug and see each other and all that stuff. It's 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 2030. What do you hope you wake up to if, if your hopes were realized, knowing that, you know, it's not heaven yet, but it, it's 10 years from now. What would you love to wake up to see the church, you maybe your own church and your community, but then also the broader North American church uh, that's struggling through a lot of this, these tensions right now? What would you love to see in, in the church and its impact on the world? I would love to see the church with the tools and the courage to have a categorically different conversation than the rest of the world is having. Uh, I would love to see the church not afraid to name systemic sin and to have real conversations about the narrative of racial difference, the ways in which the world is seducing us to believe that there is an inherent difference in the endowment of the image of God based off people's race and ethnicity. I would love to see the church living into uh, Isaiah 58 commission to take seriously that there are yokes of oppression, that there are chains that are liberating people to cycles of death and oppression and injustice, and that we are commissioned as the hands and feet of Christ to actually go and actually liberate people from those shackles. And I'd love for us to be a confessional church that says that in the midst of us trying to live in that way, we're going to get it wrong sometimes. And getting it wrong is okay, because God asks us to be faithful, not perfect. And so as we try to be faithful, we're going to have missteps. And so we just need to be humble enough to confess when we get it wrong and get right back up into the fight and try to get right back on track. And so that's what I would love to see the church be. I would love to see us be a countercultural people with a missional purpose that calls us to live distinctively and committed to bearing witness to the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ in a world that desperately needs it. Mm, amen. Brother, thank you. So yeah, you have a unique connection there that I didn't even know about, which is really cool. Um, but what is, uh, what is Mark, or I guess, what does the work of Martin Luther King and, and who he was and what he stood for, what does that mean to you um, in your work? It means everything. King is a vision of how do you turn uh, racial trauma into the fuel that ultimately culminates in being a drum major, drum major of justice. 
he is the person that reminds me that even in the midst of what other lives would feel like despair, we have to cling to the truth of the gospel that we have a Lord and Savior who has already gone before us and secured the victory. We can't think about racial oppression as something that we are going to end because ultimately these things won't be fully reconciled into the second coming, but we also don't have to be complicit with what is. Uh, we get a chance to partner with Jesus in ushering to, for kind of paving the way for uh, God's return and to be in the process of reconciling all things again, which means not just broken people, but also broken, broken systems and structures. And King's prophetic witness uh, says that we have to take seriously both dimensions of the gospel. And I'll close with this kind of quote from him real quick uh, that's always been helpful. He says, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid religion awaiting burial. And it's, it's that both and that King constantly calls us back to that really energizes me in the work that God's called me to. Man, thank you, Dominique. Thank you so much. It's been a joy and a privilege to uh, interview and have this conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. Pleasure to be with you and your congregation. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Whitewater podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this episode or have suggestions for future topics, send an email to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.